Book One, Part Four of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Histories, Volume One, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Book One, Part Four, Paragraph Sixty-Three to Seventy-Eight. So Amphilitus spoke, being inspired. Pisistratus understood him and, saying that he accepted the prophecy, led his army against the enemy. The Athenians of the city had by this time had breakfast, and after breakfast some were dicing and some were sleeping. They were attacked by Pisistratus' men and put to flight. So they fled, and Pisistratus devised a very subtle plan to keep them scattered and prevent them assembling again. He had his sons mount and ride forward. They overtook the fugitives and spoke to them as they were instructed by Pisistratus, telling them to take heart and each to depart to his home. The Athenians did, and by this means Pisistratus gained Athens for the third time, rooting his sovereignty in a strong guard and revenue collected both from Athens and from the district of the river Strymon, and he took hostage the sons of the Athenians who remained and did not leave the city at once, and placed these in Naxos. He had conquered Naxos too, and put Lygdemis in charge. And besides this, he purified the island of Delos as a result of oracles. And this is how he did it. He removed all the dead that were buried in ground within sight of the temple, and conveyed them to another part of Delos. So Pisistratus was sovereign of Athens, and as for the Athenians, some had fallen in the battle, and some, with the Alcmeonids, were exiles from their native land. So Croesus learned that at that time such problems were oppressing the Athenians, but that the Lacedaemonians had escaped from the great evils, and had mastered the Tegeans in war. In the kingship of Leon and Hegesicles at Sparta, the Lacedaemonians were successful in all their other wars, but met disaster only against the Tegeans. Before this they had been the worst governed of nearly all the Hellenes, and had had no dealings with strangers, but they changed to good government in this way. Lycurgus, a man of reputation among the Spartans, went to the oracle at Delphi. As soon as he entered the hall, the priestess said in hexameter, "'You have come to my rich temple, Lycurgus,' a man dear to Zeus and to all who have Olympian homes. I am in doubt whether to pronounce you man or god, but I think rather you are a god, Lycurgus. Some say that the Pythia also declared to him the constitution that now exists at Sparta, but the Lacedaemonians themselves say that Lycurgus brought it from Crete when he was guardian of his nephew Leobotes, the Spartan king. Once he became guardian, 
he changed all the laws and took care that no one transgressed the new ones. Lycurgus afterwards established their affairs of war, the sworn divisions, the bands of thirty, the common meals, also the ephors and the council of elders. Thus they changed their bad laws to good ones, and when Lycurgus died they built him a temple and now worship him greatly. Since they had good land and many men, they immediately flourished and prospered. They were not content to live in peace, but, confident that they were stronger than the Arcadians, asked the oracle at Delphi about gaining all the Arcadian land. She replied in hexameter, You ask me for Arcadia? You ask too much, I grant it not. There are many men in Arcadia, eaters of acorns, who will hinder you. But I grudge you not. I will give you Tegea to beat with your feet in dancing, and its fair plain to measure with a rope. When the Lacedaemonians heard the oracle reported, they left the other Arcadians alone and marched on Tegea carrying chains, relying on the deceptive oracle. They were confident they would enslave the Tegeans, but they were defeated in battle. Those taken alive were bound in the very chains they had brought with them, and they measured the Tegean plain with a rope by working the fields. The chains in which they were bound were still preserved in my day, hanging up at the temple of Athena Alea. In the previous war the Lacedaemonians continually fought unsuccessfully against the Tegeans, but in the time of Croesus and the kingship of Anaxandrides and Ariston in Lacedaemon, the Spartans had gained the upper hand. This is how. When they kept being defeated by the Tegeans, they sent ambassadors to Delphi to ask which god they should propitiate to prevail against the Tegeans in war. The Pythia responded that they should bring back the bones of Orestes, son of Agamemnon. When they were unable to discover Orestes' tomb, they sent once more to the god to ask where he was buried. The Pythia responded in hexameter to the messengers, there is a place, Tegea, in the smooth plain of Arcadia, where two winds blow under strong compulsion. Blow lies upon blow, woe upon woe. There the life-giving earth covers the son of Agamemnon. Bring him back, and you shall be lord of Tegea. When the Lacedaemonians heard this, they were no closer to discovery, though they looked everywhere. Finally it was found by Lycas, who was one of the Spartans who are called doers of good deeds. These men are those citizens who retire from the knights, the five oldest each year. They have to spend the year in which they retire from the knights, being sent here and there by the Spartan state, never resting in their efforts. It was Lycas, one of these men, who found the tomb in Tegea by a combination of luck and skill. At that time there was free access to Tegea, so he went into a blacksmith's shop, 
and watched iron being forged, standing there in amazement at what he saw done. The smith perceived that he was amazed, so he stopped what he was doing and said, My Laconian guest, if you had seen what I saw, then you would really be amazed, since you marvel so at iron-working. I wanted to dig a well in the courtyard here, and in my digging I hit upon a coffin twelve feet long. I could not believe that there had ever been men taller than now, so I opened it and saw that the corpse was just as long as the coffin. I measured it and then reburied it. So the smith told what he had seen, and Lickass thought about what was said, and reckoned that this was Orestes according to the oracle. In the smith's two bellows he found the winds, hammer and anvil were blow upon blow, and the forging of iron was woe upon woe, since he figured that iron was discovered as an evil for the human race. After reasoning this out, he went back to Sparta and told the Lacedaemonians everything. They made a pretense of bringing a charge against him and banishing him. Coming to Tegea, he explained his misfortune to the smith and tried to rent the courtyard, but the smith did not want to lease it. Finally he persuaded him and set up residence there. He dug up the grave and collected the bones, then hurried off to Sparta with them. Ever since then the Spartans were far superior to the Tegeans whenever they met each other in battle. By the time of Croesus' inquiry, the Spartans had subdued most of the Peloponnese. Croesus then, aware of all this, sent messengers to Sparta with gifts to ask for an alliance, having instructed them what to say. They came and said, Croesus, king of Lydia and other nations, has sent us with this message. Lacedaemonians, the god has declared that I should make the Greek my friend. Now therefore, since I learn that you are the leaders of Hellas, I invite you as the oracle bids. I would like to be your friend and ally, without deceit or guile. Croesus proposed this through his messengers, and the Lacedaemonians, who had already heard of the oracle given to Croesus, welcomed the coming of the Lydians and swore to be his friends and allies. And indeed they were obliged by certain benefits which they had received before from the king, for the Lacedaemonians had sent to Sardis to buy gold, intending to use it for the statue of Apollo which now stands on Thornax in Laconia and Croesus, when they offered to buy it, made them a free gift of it. For this reason, and because he had chosen them as his friends before all the other Greeks, the Lacedaemonians accepted the alliance. So they declared themselves ready to serve him when he should require, and moreover they made a bowl of bronze, engraved around the rim outside with figures, and large enough to hold twenty-seven hundred gallons, and brought it with the intention of making a gift in return to Croesus. This bowl never reached Sardis, for which two reasons are given. The Lacedaemonians say that when the bowl was near Samos on its way to Sardis, 
the Samians descended upon them in warships and carried it off. But the Samians themselves say that the Lacedaemonians who were bringing the bowl, coming too late, and learning that Sardis and Croesus were taken, sold it in Samos to certain private men, who set it up in the temple of Hera. And it may be that the sellers of the bowl, when they returned to Sparta, said that they had been robbed of it by the Samians. Such are the tales about the bowl. Croesus, mistaking the meaning of the oracle, invaded Cappadocia, expecting to destroy Cyrus and the Persian power. But while he was preparing to march against the Persians, a certain Lydian, who was already held to be a wise man, and who, from the advice which he now gave, won a great name among the Lydians, advised him as follows. His name was Sandinus. O king, you are getting ready to march against men who wear trousers of leather, and whose complete wardrobe is of leather, and who eat not what they like, but what they have for their land is stony. Further, they do not use wine, but drink water, have no figs to eat, or anything else that is good. Now if you conquer them, of what will you deprive them, since they have nothing? But if on the other hand you are conquered, then look how many good things you will lose, for once they have tasted of our blessings, they will cling so tightly to them that nothing will pry them away. For myself, then, I thank the gods that they do not put it in the heads of the Persians to march against the Lydians. Sandinus spoke thus, but he did not persuade Croesus. Indeed, before they conquered the Lydians, the Persians had no luxury and no comforts. Now the Cappadocians are called by the Greeks Syrians, and these Syrians before the Persian rule were subjects of the Medes, and at this time of Cyrus. For the boundary of the Median and Lydian empires was the river Halys, which flows from the Armenian mountains first through Cilicia, and afterwards between the Mattiini on the right and the Phrygians on the other hand, then, passing these and still flowing north, it separates the Cappadocian Syrians on the right from the Paphlagonians on the left. Thus the Halys River cuts off nearly the whole of the lower part of Asia from the Cyprian to the Euxine Sea. Here is the narrowest neck of all this land. The length of the journey across for a man travelling unencumbered is five days. The reasons for Croesus' expedition against Cappadocia were these. He desired to gain territory in addition to his own, and, these were the chief causes, he trusted the oracle and wished to avenge Astyages on Cyrus. For Cyrus, son of Cambyses, had conquered Astyages and held him in subjection. Now Astyages, son of Cyaraxes and the king of Media, was Croesus' brother-in-law, and this is how he came to be so. A tribe of wandering Scythians separated itself from the rest and escaped into Median territory. This was then ruled by Cyaraxes, son of Phraortes, son of Deioses. 
Cyaxes at first treated the Scythians kindly as suppliants for his mercy, and as he had a high regard for them, he entrusted boys to their tutelage to be taught their language and the skill of archery. As time went on, it happened that the Scythians, who were accustomed to go hunting and always to bring something back, once had taken nothing, and when they returned empty-handed, Cyaxes treated them very roughly and contemptuously, being, as appears from this, prone to anger. The Scythians, feeling themselves wronged by the treatment they had from Cyaxes, planned to take one of the boys who were their pupils, and cut him in pieces, then, dressing the flesh as they were accustomed to dress the animals which they killed, to bring and give it to Cyaxes as if it were the spoils of the hunt, and after that to make their way with all speed to Aliates, son of Sadiates, at Sardis. All this they did. Cyaxes and the guests who ate with him dined on the boy's flesh, and the Scythians, having done as they planned, fled to Aliates for protection. After this, since Aliates would not give up the Scythians to Cyaxes at his demand, there was war between the Lydians and the Medes for five years. Each won many victories over the other, and once they fought a battle by night. They were still warring with equal success when it happened, at an encounter which occurred in the sixth year, that during the battle the day was suddenly turned to night. Thales of Miletus had foretold this loss of daylight to the Ionians, fixing it within the year in which the change did indeed happen. So when the Lydians and Medes saw the day turned to night, they stopped fighting, and both were the more eager to make peace. Those who reconciled them were Cyanesis the Cilician and Labinetus the Babylonian. They brought it about that there should be a sworn agreement and a compact of marriage between them. They judged that Aliates should give his daughter Arienus to Astyages, son of Cyaxes. For without strong constraint, agreements will not keep their force. These nations make sworn compacts as do the Greeks, and besides, when they cut the skin of their arms, they lick each other's blood. Cyrus had subjugated this Astyages then, Cyrus' own mother's father, for the reason which I shall presently disclose. Having this reason to quarrel with Cyrus, Croesus sent to ask the oracles if he should march against the Persians, and when a deceptive answer came, he thought it to be favourable to him, and so led his army into the Persian territory. When he came to the river Halys, he transported his army across it by the bridges which were there then, as I maintain, but the general belief of the Greeks is that Thales of Miletus got the army across. The story is that, as Croesus did not know how his army could pass the river, as the aforesaid bridges did not yet exist then, Thales, who was in the encampment, made the river, which flowed on the left of the army, also flow on the right, in the following way. Starting from a point on the river upstream from the camp, 
he dug a deep semicircular trench, so that the stream, turned from its ancient course, would flow in the trench to the rear of the camp, and, passing it, would issue into its former bed, with the result that as soon as the river was thus divided into two, both channels could be forded. Some even say that the ancient channel dried up altogether, but I do not believe this, for in that case how did they pass the river when they were returning? Passing over with his army, Croesus then came to the part of Cappadocia called Pteria. It is the strongest part of this country, and lies on the line of the city of Sinope on the Euxine Sea, where he encamped and devastated the farms of the Syrians. And he took and enslaved the city of the Tyrians, and took all the places around it also, and drove the Syrians from their homes, though they had done him no harm. Cyrus, mustering his army, advanced to oppose Croesus, gathering to him all those who lived along the way. But before beginning his march, he sent heralds to the Ionians to try to draw them away from Croesus. The Ionians would not be prevailed on, but when Cyrus arrived and encamped face to face with Croesus there in the Pterian country, the armies had a trial of strength. The fighting was fierce, many on both sides fell, and at nightfall they disengaged with neither side victorious. The two sides contended thus. Croesus was not content with the size of his force, for his army that had engaged was far smaller than that of Cyrus. Therefore, when on the day after the battle Cyrus did not try attacking again, he marched away to Sardis, intending to summon the Egyptians in accordance with their treaty, for before making an alliance with the Lacedaemonians he had made one also with Amasis, king of Egypt, and to send for the Babylonians also, for with these two he had made an alliance, Labinetus at this time being their sovereign, and to summon the Lacedaemonians to join him at a fixed time. He had in mind to muster all these forces and assemble his own army, then to wait until the winter was over and march against the Persians at the beginning of spring. With such an intention, as soon as he returned to Sardis, he sent heralds to all his allies, summoning them to assemble at Sardis in five months' time. And as for the soldiers whom he had with him, who had fought with the Persians, all of them who were mercenaries he discharged, never thinking that after a contest so equal Cyrus would march against Sardis. This was how Croesus reasoned. Meanwhile snakes began to swarm in the outer part of the city, and when they appeared the horses, leaving their accustomed pasture, devoured them. When Croesus saw this, he thought it a portent, and so it was. He at once sent to the homes of the Telmessian interpreters to inquire concerning it. But though his messengers came and learned from the Telmessians what the portent meant, they could not bring back word to Croesus, for he was a prisoner before they could make their voyage back to Sardis. Nonetheless, this was the judgment of the Telmessians, 
that Croesus must expect a foreign army to attack his country, and that when it came it would subjugate the inhabitants of the land. For the snake, they said, was the offspring of the land, but the horse was an enemy and a foreigner. This was the answer which the Telmessians gave Croesus, knowing as yet nothing of the fate of Sardis and of the king himself. But when they gave it, Croesus was already taken. End of Book One, Part Four Recording by Graham Redmond